Good evening, everyone. My name is Ed. I'm the congregational pastor of this our 7 p.m. church family. It's great that you're here with us. Uh, let me extend my welcome to Steph's. And if you're joining us online, great to have you with us or in the overflow. God bless you. It's great to, to have you here tonight. Just a tiny bit of family news before we get into our, our study of the, the letter of Romans. Next week, we're going to be having a family dinner. Uh, God's called us together. So we're going to come together after the service, bring some tables up and down here. It's going to be $10 per head, and uh, everyone's invited. So we hope that you can stay around for dinner next week, a chance to just go a bit slower and connect with one another over a nice meal. So that's coming up, and we're, we're looking forward to that. Well, we're in the letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 13, and I'd love you to open that up. And we're thinking about God's life-giving laws. <clears throat> when God gives a command... It is in order to lead us to the best way of living. So take God's command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now some preachers would go down the alley, you can't love your neighbour unless you love yourself, and they talk all about loving yourself, but we are from the North Shore and we know how to love ourselves, don't we? So I don't need to go that way. I need to encourage you, let's love others the way that we love ourselves. Imagine how good life would be if we had extended that same thought to others that we extend to ourselves. It would be a life uh, free from doing harm to anyone. You wouldn't have to worry that you're going to hurt someone or have the wrong motives. You wouldn't need to be restrained by rules and regulations because you'd always be driven by this great life-giving, loving principle, loving your neighbour as yourself. Well, what about living in the light? Living in the light of Jesus' return. You'd be ready for when Jesus comes back because he wants to come back and find you loving and you'd be doing that. And you wouldn't get caught up in the deeds of darkness. Our world, our depraved world, you wouldn't get stuck in those sinful ways. Friends, following God's life-giving commands, love your neighbour as yourself. It's the very best way to live. It's God's good plan and good intentions for us. And so we're going to explore tonight three reasons to love. It's right, it's the time, and it's possible. So let's think about loving our neighbour as ourselves because it's just the right thing to do. Well, throughout human history, no one has improved on the moral codes revealed for us in the Bible. Uh, the, the, the scriptures, the, the Bible, God's law, reveals the best way to live in God's world. And Paul's given us a little selection of it. It'd be great. I'd love you to have your Bible open with you on your phone or or in your booklet, or with your Bible. Verse 9 gives us a smattering of God's laws. You shall not commit adultery. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Uh, these are taken from the Ten Commandments. Uh, I love it. I often meet people who say to me, I'm, I'm not into Jesus like you, uh, but I just live by the Ten Commandments. To which I say, well, the first commandment says, love God and have no other gods and God's revealed himself in Jesus. I'd hate to think how you're going with the other nine commands if you can't even keep number one. But God has revealed himself in these life-giving ten commands. But beyond that, Paul goes on and says, well, whatever other commands there may be, and there's quite a few. So in the Old Testament law, there were 613 commands. How do you make sure that you're doing all those do's and not doing all those don'ts? Well, Paul says it's all summed up in this one command, end of verse 9, love your neighbour as yourself. So you can get to the heart of it 
by keeping this one command. But if you can do it all by keeping that command, well, what's the need for all the 613? Why do you need all these do's and don'ts? Well, God's law functions as, as prohibitions that, that give you the boundaries within which to lead the best life. They show you what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. Let me illustrate uh, using COVID restrictions, which we're all very, very familiar with. There was one rule, one guiding principle throughout COVID lockdowns. It was stay safe. But the government continues to give us prohibitions, laws that teach us what we can and can't do. So we're told that we can have this many people in our home, that we have to wear masks at this time, that we can't gather with more than this many people outdoors. They direct us in the best way for us to do that one thing, to stay safe. So it's the same with God's laws. They provide the boundaries within which we're to lead the best life. But here's the thing, right? God's law says don't covet. You might say, what's coveting? It's lusting and longing for things that you don't have. That sounds like quite a good idea. I've always wanted to have that nice car like Anna and I'd like to be good-looking like Anthony. I'd love to have a great family like James. And off we go, because the Lord does that. It takes our sinful nature and it reveals just how desperately short we fall of loving God as we should and loving others as we should. There's only one person who's ever perfectly fulfilled those 613 laws. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his perfect life and his sacrificial death, he's changed our relationship with God's laws. They're no longer rules to be obeyed leading to life. They're now wisdom to be heeded leading to life. Jesus has fulfilled them all, and so we are to heed the wisdom in God's word and and let it shape the best way to live. Paul goes on, verse 10, he says, Love doesn't do any harm to a neighbor, therefore love fulfills the law. So in what way does it fulfill it? Well, it's not that if you do this one command, you're doing everything else the law requires because only Jesus can do that. It's not that this command nullifies all the rest of the commands because God has given us those prohibitions to guide us in how best to live our lives. But it's in that final spirit that we've been speaking about. This one command gets to the heart of God's law. Jesus, remember, he didn't do away with God's rules. He said on the Sermon on the Mount, you might have remembered, he said, you've heard it said, for example, do not murder. But I tell you that do not even hate a brother or sister for the one who does so has murdered them in their heart. Jesus sharpened God's laws. He he saved us from just keeping the letters of God's laws and he took us to the spirit of God's law, which is to love others as ourselves. So Jesus has changed our relationship with God's law, but he's, he's helped us to get to its heart. And at its very heart, at its core, is that key, that royal command that the Scriptures call it, love your neighbour as yourself. So loving is the right thing to do. It is the best way to live in God's world. It helps you to keep all of God's good commands. It's the spirit that the law was given in. Secondly, Loving our neighbour as ourselves is good because it's the right time. It is time to love your neighbour. Do you know what time it is on God's clock? Verse 11 tells us that we're to love our neighbour as ourselves, understanding the present time. So do you understand 
the times that you live in. Because on God's clock, here's where we're up to. God, in his saving purposes, has fully and finally revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son has sent his spirit so that believers can be strengthened in faith and and empowered to go out and and evangelize the nations, to share this news with the ends of the earth. And the last thing that God has to do on his clock, the last work of his saving purposes, is the return of Jesus Christ. That's all God has left. So verse 12 carries on. uh, So verse 11 carries on. It says, The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. I'd like to have just a little moment of honesty about that verse. Yes, your salvation, the day of Jesus' return, is nearer than when you first put your trust in Jesus. Absolutely. But Paul wrote this in AD 54. That's that's almost 2,000 years ago. That's not very near, is it? That's a long time. So what's God doing? Well, you um, you might have had to discipline a child in your life, you know, the count to three, one. So you see them doing something, you say, you know, I'm going to count to three and I want you to put down that sharp knife, fire blade, saw, whatever they're doing. I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths, two and fifteen sixteenths, and, and on you go and, and the three drags on. And, and why do you drag the three? Because you want to show mercy. Because you want to be gracious. Friends, God is dragging on the three because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to hear of him and to come to know him. And so this day, it is coming near, but it's not here yet. And so it's time to wake up. Christian, it's time to come alive. Verse 12, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. You know when you uh, wake up before your alarm, and uh, I had a terrible sleep last night, this happened to me, you look out the window, and there's that first glimmer of daylight, you think, oh, oh well, I may as well get up. It's time to get up. The first glimmer of dawn is shining through, the day is almost here, Jesus is coming back, it is time to wake up and start loving people. And so I do, I, I pray for the return of Jesus. But you know what? Deep down, I do hope that it doesn't happen today. Because if it happens tonight, my dad will be on the wrong side of returning Jesus Christ. If it happens tonight, many of my friends will be on the wrong side of returning Jesus Christ. If it happens tonight, many of my neighbours will be on the wrong side of returning Jesus Christ. And so it is time to come awake and to get loving. And as we love people, we show them the goodness of God. We Absolutely, we must speak about Jesus. The most loving thing that we can do is to share Jesus Christ with our friends so that they can trust him like we do. But the emphasis of this passage is actually just on your life. It's saying that the way that you love your neighbours is through a holy life. Holy living will, will shine for God and will provoke people to take Jesus seriously. And so, friends, Jesus is coming back. 
Jesus is returning. And when he returns, will he find you awake? Will he find you loving? If Jesus comes back tomorrow, would you have lived the same way that you live today? Would you have just got on with loving your neighbor as you did today? Well, Jesus is coming. It's right to love our neighbor because it is time. It's uh, finally, thirdly, it's right to love our neighbor because it is possible. The culture to which Paul was writing in Rome, uh, this letter, was a a very self-indulgent, self-gratifying, debaucherous culture to which he was writing. It it was one in which everyone was out for their own self-gratification, their own pleasure. doesn't sound too much unlike Sydney, does it? And it can be easy to think that, you know, the Christian is just, it's inevitable that they'll get washed along with the tide of, of the deeds of their day. But we've been given two weapons to stand up and stand against the dark deeds of our age. Uh, one of them's there for us in, in verse 12. So, second sentence, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. That word armour is translated in other parts of the Bible as weapons of spiritual warfare. It's more than just a, a shield to kind of hide under so that you don't get caught up in the, the dark deeds of our world. It's actually preparing yourself for military engagement. Light, light attacks darkness. Just by virtue of being light, light shines out the darkness around us. And so put on light. You belong to the day, so live a light-filled life. And the second weapon is to, verse 14, to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to that a little more, uh, just, just a little later. But I want to point out to you that very important last sentence of verse 14. It says there, as you clothe yourself with, if you put on the armour of, of light and as you clothe yourself with Jesus Christ, you're also not to even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It said that for people who wrestle with addictions, uh, that a big part of the addiction is not just the hit or the high, but the anticipation leading up to that high. So it it might start from that thrill of deciding, I'm going to go there. And and then it's it's built as as the the call to the dealer goes out, or the booty call goes out, or the the meet-up with that person. And, And then it builds and builds as the anticipation comes of that high or that hit. And in fact, the whole thing leads to this intoxicating, uh, addictive pattern. Friends, we're not even to let it begin. Not even let our minds start going down that path. We're not to make any provisions for the flesh, but rather we put on Jesus Christ. We live in the light. Well, verse 13 lists a number of prohibitions, a number of laws that God says, rules to live by. And I'm going to explore them with us tonight, but I don't want to just think about why they're bad. I want to think about why they hurt, why they hurt others, why they're not loving to our neighbours, why they're bad for us as well. So let's have a look at, uh, at verse 13. Paul says, 
Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. Not sure the last time you used the word carouse. It's not part of my vocabulary. It's the idea of overindulgence, sort of unrestrained feasting. Uh, Unrestrained consumption of food or of alcohol, Excessive feasting, excessive use of alcohol, overindulgence. Uh, We often might say to ourselves, well, it doesn't hurt anyone else. It's just me putting things into my own body. But not uh, not only does it cause us to lose our inhibitions, leading to wrong choices, uh, which are sort of sins of commission, choosing to, to go down the wrong path, But I think one of the big problems that happens with overindulgence, food and wine, is actually the way that it it blinds us to the good things that we should do. Sins of omission, the things that we fail to do that we're meant to do. So the the gluttonous Christian, the the overindulging Christian at a dinner party, is just looking out for their own interests, feasting and gorging themselves. Well, they're so focused on their own stomach, their own guts and greed that they're not conscious of the needs of others around the dinner table. They're not thinking about how to help the host. They're thinking about dessert. And and the drunk Christian, well, not only are inhibitions down and and potentially saying things that they shouldn't say, but ability to read a room and to love and care for others, to contribute well to, to dinner conversation, well, that's all out the window. And then the next day, well, you're a wreck. You've got a headache, you're wallowing in self-pity. And so actually, as we do these things in our own body, they play out in our inability to love others as God would have us do. I've sadly been at gatherings of Christian leaders where Christian leaders have been getting drunk at end-of-year celebration gatherings. It should not be the case. Friends, we're to drink but not get drunk. We had a party. Jesus told us, taught us how to party, but party in a way that pleases God. My strategy is that if I know that there's going to be overindulgence in food and wine, well, I drive my car, and then I know that I'll have one or two drinks, and then I'll just turn to the mineral waters and let everyone else go wild and do what they need to do. That's my strategy. I don't know what yours is, but do not get drunk. Do not live in the darkness. Do not overindulge. Second, Christians living in the light are not to engage in sexual immorality and debauchery. Christian standards in regards to sexual purity are slipping, aren't they? We're not having that same sense of zeal and and that passion for purity that perhaps used to. I I think that our standards of sexual behaviour are more shaped by the world than the word of God. So the word of God says to us that sex is a gift that God has given us, a gift to glue married people together, a gift that is never meant to be ripped apart. Our world says go and get it from whoever you can, whenever you can, wherever you can, and that it will make you whole, and it will not. It will tear you apart. And and too often uh, I, I meet Christians who say, well, you know, we're not teenagers anymore. We're two consenting adults. We're not hurting anyone else. 
But who are you to know how you may hurt people by your actions? Paul has already told us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And I promise you, even in those who have eternal life, sin still will work death. It will pay down death every single time. And it will hurt. It will hurt you or hurt others. The Bible says that if we wouldn't do something with our sister or brother, we shouldn't do it with anyone else. We are to keep the marriage bed pure. We are to have high moral standards with regards to sexual conduct because it's the loving thing to do. And you know what? If you are not married to someone, then they are potentially someone else's spouse. And you never know what damage you might do to someone else's spouse if you steal from them in their sexual purity. It's not just a problem with the young either. Uh, speaking to an aged chaplain a while back, and he told me that one of the most prolific issues in aged care homes is sexual misconduct. Just people who have let go of, of, of their, their sensibilities, people who just think, well, stuff it, there's nothing left, and, and they're, they're really behaving indecently. It should not be, friends. It should not be amongst us. Finally, we're not to engage in dissension or jealousy. I think envy, gossip, infighting are often the sins of the religious, the sins of people who like to look good on the outside, sins of people who don't want to be seen to be doing the wrong thing but, but whose hearts are running from God. I was speaking with um, my wife, Bridget, about the positive impact of loving others on our relationships and on our networks. When our kids went to school, no one told us that we would have to enter back into schoolyard politics because we started making friends with people, but then those friends didn't want to be friends with other people, and then they would gossip about them and want to keep the friendship groups split apart. Well, Bridget, God bless her, just went in and tried to love everyone, and as she did so, she saw transformation in the way that the relationships were going. But, you know, when you're sitting over a coffee and that juicy piece of gossip comes up, you just need the prohibition. You just need to know, do not gossip. Do not go there. It is not good. It will harm. It will hurt. It always does. You may think that it will never leave this circle. You can say to someone, don't tell anyone, but it always gets out. And if it doesn't get out now, it will get out when Jesus returns because Jesus says every word will be proclaimed from the rooftops. So how are you feeling? How are you feeling about what it looks like to live in the light, to live a, a loving life where you're loving others as yourself. I feel condemned. I feel like I've not done it. I don't know about you. Maybe you're currently trapped in a pattern of sin that you need to leave behind. Maybe you're condemned about past failures and things that you haven't done that you knew you should have. That's why verse 14 is so precious to us. Verse 14 tells us, Rather than do these things, we are to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father gives you Christ's robe of righteousness. It is a perfect covering robe. I'm not sure if you've ever been to a social event, a formal social event, where you've turned up underdressed. It's a terrible feeling. You're there, you feel like everyone's looking at you, Every conversation you start, you're like, <laughs> yeah, I've read the invite right. I thought it said smart casual, you know, all that stuff. 
There's no hiding before the all-seeing eyes of God. Everything's laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees, he knows. But he has given you Christ's righteousness as a robe to put on over all those condemning sins. It perfectly covers you up and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So put on Christ to cover up your wrongdoings. Not only does it cover you for those things that condemn you, but also it, it protects you from the contamination of sin. You know those infomercials where they're, they're advertising that product that uh, you know, nothing can stick to, you know, eggs can't stick to it, wine can't stick to it. That's why Christ's righteousness. When you put on the robe of Christ, sin cannot stick to you. And that's why that exhortation, that command is given to people who are in Christ, people who, who follow him every day, where to daily put on Christ to save us from our condemnation and to spare us from contamination of sin. Because, friends, when God tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, he's instructing you in the very best way to live. He's showing you how to live in a way that does no harm to others, that gets to the heart of all God's laws and, and does what's right. He's guiding you in the way to live so that you're ready when Jesus comes back. When your master returns, you'll be found loving others, doing God's good works, ready to meet him. And it's possible because you can put on Jesus Christ. You can turn away from the dark deeds of our age and you can live a, a transformed, light-filled life.